Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News and Views. I'm your host, Dr. Roger Welton, practicing veterinarian and reporter for VNN, the Veterinary News Network, coming to you live this evening, as always, from the Florida Space Coast. A very good evening to you. Ladies and gentlemen, as the title indicates, this show is all about you. I am here without a guest, uh, just to answer your questions, kind of like when I first started. I wasn't doing many interviews at the time, and we were just talking about stuff, and you were free to call at your leisure. Now, you're always free to call at your leisure when I have a guest on, but uh, today it's just me as a veterinarian, canine and feline health expert. I'm here for you, so please feel free to give me a call at one eight seven seven eight seven eight one four three five. For those of you turning in for the first time, I also have a live chat room. Uh, you can find my chat room by clicking on the link that says chat at my show page at, on the Blog Talk Radio Network, and that's blogtalkradio.com front slash rwdvm. Right in my profile, click on chat. If you're a little bit too shy to call, don't want to be heard on the air, a bunch of people have been taking advantage of our chat room. You can post a question and I'll address it here live on the air. The other way you can post a question if you are an archive listener and don't have the ability to post in live either by chat or by call in, you can also email me at comments at web-dvm.net. That email address, again, it's comments at web-dvm.net. That actually has become a very popular method. So I, since I'd say, you know, there's probably about 70% of my listeners actually tune in by archive. Uh, archive is the podcast that people can download at their leisure and listen at their leisure uh, at any time. And a lot of my listeners are subscribers to the podcast, either through iTunes or directly through Blog Talk Radio. So keep the emails coming. We have a bunch of those to address tonight. But uh, before we get to those, I just want to give you our call-in number one more time. It is toll-free, 1-877-878-1435. No callers just yet. No one on the chat at this point in time. So very quickly before uh, I move on to the email question, I just want to t- remind everybody that February is dental month. February is dental month, specifically animal dental health month. And I just want to remind everyone how important it is to keep your dogs and cats teeth healthy. A lot of people don't think about that. They don't realize that rotten teeth equates to rotten health. Um, here's what bad, bad teeth do. Uh, they, they, it's a lot more than just bad breath. And I've done actually a whole show about this. I'm not going to harp on this too long, but it, it, it's a lot more than just bad breath. So, so of course, you know, we, we always think of doggy breath and kitty breath, especially the doggy breath doesn't strike us as particularly pleasant, but it should never be offensive. You know, if, if your dog or cat's breath is offensive, that means there's something going on in that mouth that should not be going on. And if they are getting tartar on their teeth and the tartar is beginning to cause gingivitis, which is inflammation, infection of the gums, what we're talking about is a very serious problem because Here's what tartar is. When you see tartar on the teeth, tartar is bacterial colonies that has become so dense on the teeth that it's actually forming this sort of concrete-like type of material, and we call that tartar. And that tartar, you know, a lot of people will say, well, I'm going to get aggressive about the teeth now. Now that you told me there's tartar, I'm going to start brushing. I'm going to feed dry food. I'm going to feed greeny bones. I'm going to do all this stuff. And that's wonderful, and I love the enthusiasm. But, folks, it's too late. By the time the breath is offensive, there's tartar on the teeth, there's gingivitis. Just like with people, those teeth need to be cleaned and scaled and polished. And if there's any teeth that are actually showing root exposure and that root is rotting away and rotting bone around it, meaning surrounding jawbone, those teeth need to be extracted. They need to be removed because if they're at the point of no return, they're doing the pet no good. They're likely causing chronic pain, and they are just contributing to overall poor health. So... Bad teeth, what do they do? Specifically, they suppress the immune system because what happens is the immune system is working so hard to fight the infection in this in that mouth at all times that basically it's a stressed immune system, leaving them susceptible to all kinds of diseases. When it's causing pain, what happens is that 
stresses the body. Pain causes stress. We like to minimize pain. Most of us like to do it because we're nice people, because uh, most veterinarians actually care that an animal is in pain or not. But let's say we're not nice people. Pain, not minimizing pain is bad medicine. And the reason it's bad medicine is because pain causes stress, and stress causes the release of stress hormones and suppresses the immune system even further and leads to just overall poor health. So don't take the teeth lightly, folks. If your veterinarian looks at those teeth and says, these teeth really are just really bad, a lot of periodontal disease, bad gingivitis, I recommend a dental, folks, get the dental done. For, in my own clinic, uh, I honor dental health, animal dental health month every year by offering my dentistry procedures at 15% off, which a lot of people I'm very happy to say are taking full advantage of. So, um, you know, by all means, keep those teeth clean, keep those gums healthy. That said, I'm going to just move on here. I love just a quick reminder. Uh, my call-in number is one eight seven seven eight seven eight one four three five one eight seven seven eight seven eight one four three five. I will be on the air here for a while, so please do indeed give me a call with your questions. Um, no one on the chat just yet. Not a caller yet. So I'm going to move on to our email questions mailed in at the comments at web-dvm.com email. By the way, that email is also posted on my show page, blogtalkradio.com, front slash rwdvm. So let's go to our first question, sent in by Kevin from Palm Bay, Florida. Kevin's question is, my 11-year-old golden retriever is obese. He has sustained a hit-by-car injury in one back leg and had a knee surgery on the other back leg, making consistent exercise not possible for him. We have him on weight control food for over a year, and rather than lose weight, he has put weight on. Any suggestions? All right. This is a very common, very common problem. Obesity is actually probably up there with, with dental disease, maybe maybe the most common health problem in dogs and cats. Specifically here, we're talking about an old golden retriever. Of course, he doesn't have the ability to exercise very well, apparently, because he has sustained these injuries in the past, probably has some degenerative joint disease, some scar tissue from those injuries. So moving around is not that easy. But I'll tell you, for an 11-year-old dog, moving around probably, even if he had not sustained these kind of injuries, moving around is probably still a little bit difficult, generally speaking, because that's a senior-age dog. In fact, we're, we're treading into the geriatric years. But what that means is that all of the joints in the body are not what they used to be. You know, old gray Mary ain't what she used to be. Old gray golden ain't what he used to be. So exercise naturally is going to decrease. So, you know, as these dogs get older, we need to rely less on that. And so what do we do? First off, I'd like to address Kevin's point that uh, the weight control food that the dog has been on over a year, and instead of taking weight off, he's actually put weight on. I can't tell you how common a story that is because what happens, people will, you know, they're they're trusting of food labels and they're trusting of TV commercials and they'll go to the grocery store or the, the uh, local superstore and they will purchase a weight control food from one of those commercial grocery store type of quality diets. And unfortunately, what they're getting is, okay, maybe there's a little bit less fat in this. Maybe, you know, there's less simple sugars overall, though I got to tell you, those diets don't tend to make a very big effort to make them weight control. They're still loaded with fillers. They're still loaded with less than ideal nutrient sources. And I, I, I will, I've said this before, and I will say it again, those diets often are little better than feeding your pet roadkill. That goes for canines and felines. Right now we're talking about a dog, a golden retriever. I think the first thing I would consider is, you know, let's let's check what we're feeding as a weight loss diet because they're not all created equal. So, you know, let's say Kevin here has gone to, say, PetSmart or Petco and, and has diligently seeked out a pet store grade good commercial diet and has found a decent weight loss food. Well, I'll tell you, even those foods sold at the pet store are not all created equal either. I find that many of them, while they may be weight control and they look good, the nutrient breakdown looks good, first off, the labels often tell the pet owner to feed more than they really should be feeding, number one. Number two, I find a lot of them just don't work very well. 
Um, so in my own experience, and nobody's giving me a check for this, okay? No one is giving me a check for this. I wish they were, but they're not. The Hills Corporation is a fairly well-respected pet food manufacturer, and they have a line of diets called Science Diet. And what I have found in my own experience, as far as commercial diets go, the Science Diet Canine Light Formula, the light is spelled L-I-T-E, Science Diet Canine Light Formula seems to be the very best weight loss formula available commercially, meaning you don't have to go to a vet to buy a prescription diet. And I want to tell you this. What you need to do is not just get the weight loss diet because you can overfeed that too and, you know, there you are not really accomplishing anything because instead of instead of having a weight loss diet, you know, instead of, of having regular food that's giving a certain amount of calories, you're giving a certain amount of calories because you're feeding more of the weight loss diet. They can eat too much of that too. So we, what you want to do is go by the guideline of feeding no more than one 8-ounce cup per 20 pounds of body weight per day. Ideally, I like that divided into two feedings um, in the day because if you divide the feedings, it's better for the metabolism, just like in people. Metabolism moves faster and does better with more more than one feeding. And if you can split it into three feedings, even better if you have the time and the wherewithal for that. So when you're doing this calculation of one 8-ounce cup of food per 20 pounds of body weight per day, don't do it based on the dog's current weight. Do it based on the dog's weight that he should be at. So if he's 20 pounds overweight, subtract 20 pounds from his current weight. And that's your feeding requirement. And if you try the science diet canine light formula and you feed that much and you're consistent with it, I will tell you that your dog will get weight off within one to two months. And I suggest you call your vet and ask him if you could bring your dog down to weigh him monthly while you're in this process. And the whole family has to cooperate with you. This is not something that you can just, on one hand, you're feeding a weight loss diet, the right amount, and then you turn your head and your kids are feeding the dog from their plate. Everybody's got to cooperate, okay? So this has got to be a group effort within the family. I don't know if Kevin has a whole family or or is just with the dog or whatever, but um, whatever the case, weight will come off. Now, if weight does not come off, then I would consider having the dog's thyroid checked. Hypothyroidism or underactive thyroid is very common in golden retrievers, and it is also a very a leading cause in dogs in general for obesity. So if you don't get that weight off with a good weight loss diet, then I would consider going, taking the dog into the vet and having that thyroid checked because lots of times you fix that thyroid, which is easy to do, give them thyroid pills twice a day, the metabolism picks up, they start shedding weight like crazy. And also there's other systemic reasons you would want to treat hypothyroidism because it's just better for the metabolism overall as a whole. So that's Kevin from Palm Bay. That's my answer. I hope that helps, and I do thank you for your participation. We have a caller on the air right now, number ending in 8741. You're on the air. Hi, this is Melody from Illinois, and I have a new puppy. Hello, Melody. Okay. Hi. And... Um, I was playing tug-of-war with him with one of those rope toys, and okay. I found a tooth later. Um, do ah. dogs lose teeth like babies, and if so, am I going to find teeth all over my house? How old is the puppy? Um, I'm not really sure. I got him from a friend who had him, but he's 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 young. He I mean, me? he's still chewing, you know, on stuff for Would teething. You- Okay. Okay. And well, here's the, they do lose their they they lose their first set of teeth just like we do. Um, you're going to see them start losing teeth typically around eight weeks. I'm sorry, be between eight and twelve weeks of age. So if he lost a tooth, um, I wouldn't be too concerned about it. But you might st- you you would you might well, he's see about them two months old. Two months old. Okay. So that's about when we start seeing them lose their teeth. That one might have been encouraged to fall out a little bit sooner because of the fact that uh, there was some tug-of-war going on, so I'd be a little careful with that. I'm personally not a big fan of playing tug-of-war with dogs because I think that it it it, it kind of ingrains bad habits, and he might want to play tug-of-war with everybody, whereas you might know what you're doing and having fun. That could result in somebody getting bit by accident later on. Um, but that's my own personal opinion on that. But uh, as far as the teeth are concerned, yes, that tooth, a permanent tooth, will grow in and fill in that spot. You will be start, you will start seeing uh, little teeth around the house, and that's that's very common. 
and uh, he will get a second set of teeth. All teeth will have uh, fallen out and new adult teeth erupted by the age of six months. So that helps you out there. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Thank you. Very good. Thank you very much for your participation, and good luck to you. Thank you. Take care. Okay, so that was a very, very good question. Um, A lot of people actually don't realize that dogs uh, grow two sets of teeth. You know, it's something that makes them very similar to us. Um, All right, well, I do thank that caller for calling in. Uh, Let's move on to our next email question. We don't have anybody on the chat right now, and no other callers on the queue. Let me just remind you, if you're listening live, the the toll-free number to call in and ask me a question, as our uh, previous caller, just Melody, just asked me a question, is 1-877-878-1435. 1-877-878-1435. Call me, ask me a question about anything. I'd love to hear your thoughts, concerns, questions that you may have. Moving on to our next uh, call uh, email question, we have... Eric from Vieira, Florida, local listener. My dog had a tumor that was taken off and came back grade 2 mast cell tumor. My vet says there's a 50-50 shot that surgery will be cure-all, and we just wait and see. What is your take on this? Okay, this is a really good question because mast cell tumors, they're spelled M-A-S-T, mast cell tumors. They're a very common skin tumor of dogs. And there's three different varieties. We're going to see grade one tumors, grade two tumors, and grade three. Grade one has cancerous potential and can mutate into a more aggressive form, which would be grade two or three. Typically, I, I always want to take off a grade uh, a mast cell tumor regardless of the grade. But when we when we do take off a, a mast cell tumor and it comes back grade one, we as long as we have a clean excision, meaning we've nef- left no cells behind, no tumor cells behind, that is a very good prognosis. I've actually never seen one grow back at the site of excision. I've never seen one later on cause cancer. Grade 2 mast cell tumors are a little bit more aggressive as far as malignancy or cancerousness uh, is, is concerned. Grade 2s are considered a cancerous mast. Uh, or uh, a cancerous form of mast cell, and we do want to take those off as well. We are a little bit concerned. I will often recommend a follow-up with an oncologist uh, just just to see if there's any preventive measures we can take. My own experience with grade 2 mast cell tumors, and that's what Eric is talking about here, is that I think it's better a better than 50-50 shot that surgery will be cure-all. I, I find it's more like 70% of these. Uh, do not regrow, provided there's a clean excision. And that's very important because, you know, taking these things off, if you leave one cell behind, one tumor cell, one microscopic cell behind, you know, that was going to regrow into a, a brand new tumor. Those cells, cancerous cells, tend to have an ability to reproduce fairly effectively. So a lot depends on how comfortable your veterinarian is that he got a complete excision. What I do, generally speaking, when I'm taking off a known mast cell tumor is I don't know if it's going to be a grade 1, 2, or 3. The grading only happens once we send the tissue off. So I'm I'm going for like a 2 to 3 centimeter margin uh, excision. And what that means is I'm taking 2 to 3 centimeters of healthy tissue along with the mast to ensure or give ourselves our best assurance that I've gotten all of that mass. So, um, again, if your vet got all of it, and I don't know if that's the case, I don't know if he feels confident that he got all of it, that's a whole other discussion for you to have with your veterinarian. But uh, if there was a complete excision, and he's confident in that, and the report is, is, is clear that there was a complete excision, I would say the odds are 70% in my own experience have taken off a ton of those that, uh, that that surgery will be cured. So best of luck to you. The 30% where it's not curative, I don't think I've seen full-out cancer, systemic cancer result in grade uh, from grade twos. Uh, what I do tend to see, though, is in those 30% where surgery is not curative, you'll see them pop up other places on the body. And what I do, do generally is just keep taking them off, you know, Caution the, rec- the the owner to recognize them uh, as well as possible. You know, be vigilant. Check out the dog. Look for any unusual masses. Bring them bring them to me if there's any unusual skin lesions. Let me aspirate it. It's a very simple little test I can do in the office 
where I can just do a I'll just kind of poke it with a needle, squirt it, squirt it on a slide, and see if there's mast cells. They're very easy to recognize. Take them off while they're still small, so you're talking about a very small uh, excision. So you know, again, the the 30% in my experience that I've seen lead to uh, a recurrence. You now hasn't been full out systemic cancer with grade two. I just haven't seen that. I've been doing this for nine years. Oh man, I've taken off over 200 of those things. Grade threes, I really worry about. Grade three mast cell tumors are very aggressive. I usually recommend, you know, not only the surgery that I do, but a, a, a definitive protocol to be had with a veterinary oncologist. That's a veterinary cancer specialist that can recommend some preventive measures that can hopefully prevent the grade three mast cell situation from going systemic and ending up in the liver, lungs, and all that sort of thing. So that's Eric from Vieira, Florida. I hope that answers your question. It's a very good one. Um, no one on the queue just now, and telephone-wise, and we don't have anyone on the chat posting a question just yet. So I'm going to move on to our next email question. Uh, very quickly, though, before I do that, I want to remind you of our toll-free call-in number, one eight seven seven eight seven eight. One four three five one eight seven seven eight seven eight one four three five. Our next email uh, question here is from Lorraine from Westchester, New York. We're getting listeners from all over the place. I love it. Her question is: My male yellow lab has been a little weenie. This is funny since being a puppy. <laughs> now three years old, his fearfulness has reached an almost unbearable point where he is literally afraid of his own shadow. No one has ever so much as spanked this dog as I do not believe in striking animals as a training method. Good for you, Lorraine. He has had nothing but love and been treated like a little prince. I'm at my wits end. Please help. Okay, so we have a fearful little weenie of a dog in the words of Lorraine from Westchester, New York. Um, you know, I've been seeing this increasingly in Labradors, and it's a shame to see because what we have is a traditionally a very gentle, fun family dog. They love to swim. They love to fetch. They're gentle with children. And tr traditionally, they've been among the, pop the more popular breeds of dog. I personally have a passion for Labrador Retrievers. I've, I'm on my second one right now, and I just adore him. But I'm seeing this trend as time goes on here. When I first came out of school, veterinary school, that is, back in 2002, you know, you can almost be guaranteed you're going to have a pleasant visit when, you know, you look at the breed of the, the patient you're going to see in its Labrador Retriever. You're thinking to yourself, oh, this is going to be easy because they're just big mushes. They come in, they lick you to death, they're cooperative, they just don't care about anything. Well, increasingly over the last, you know, several years, unfortunately, the, the worst thing that could happen to a breed, unfortunately, is that they become popular because what happens is you have your reputable breeders who are breeding for the sake of the breed, for the passion for the breed. They're doing all the right things, all the right testing. They're breeding for temperament. So if they have a really skittish puppy that comes out, uh, they're not going to let that dog be bred because they don't want to pass along those, um, you know, those, those less than ideal traits. We don't want skittish, fearful dogs in our midst. It's, just, it's, it, it's not good for a dog to live that way. It's not. It, it can be very tough on the people. As an example, here is Lorraine. So, we've had backyard breeders, pet stores, uh, puppy mills. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry that want to make a wants to make a buck off the popularity of the Labrador Retriever has been putting out these dogs. And unfortunately, are starting to compromise the breed. Uh, not just physically with things like, you know, last week we talked about hip dysplasia, but also with temperament. And I'm seeing a lot of these just skitsy, crazy, fearful Labradors, and I, it really makes me sad. So what is Lorene to do about this? Well, if you recall a couple shows ago, I had on the air the CEO of BarkBusters, which is a company that has dog behavioral therapists, they call themselves, they don't call themselves trainers, therapists all over the country, actually all over the world, but specifically, uh, we're talking Westchester, New York. Now, I have a BarkBusters therapist right here in my little corner of Florida, which is still, you know, not the most populated area of Florida, still in very much ways a, a rural corner of Florida, and still, we have a BarkBusters rep. So I would imagine, Lorraine, in Westchester, New York, that you probably have access to a few different bar BarkBusters therapists. So my suggestion to you to start with would be to go to BarkBusters.com, type in your zip code, and find uh, information about contacting a local rep. They, I do believe they give you a free consultation and they, all the therapy and training is done at your house. Basically, 
what Mr. Liam Crow, the CEO of Barkbusters, was mentioning to me last time we spoke is a wonderful interview. I'd suggest you actually go, go back to the archive and listen to that show. It's called Dog Training the Australian Way. What he was mentioning is that what, what they have done is through research and just great experience is they've learned to speak dog. <laughs> um, and and I got to tell you, there's been a number of cases where Pam, my local rep here, she has been able to just change the lives of some of these really fearful, skittish, even aggressive dogs, not by doing it in any way that's forceful or threatening or trying to dominate the dog, but just, just by the owner getting to understand the psyche of the dog, and in this case, understanding why they're so fearful. Why do they lack such confidence? And that is certainly one way to go. Now, is it the answer to every case? No, it's not. And Barkbusters will be the first to tell you that. But it certainly is worth a try and is part of the solution. So I'm a big fan of Barkbusters. Again, I'm not getting a check for saying that. I just really like the company. And uh, my experience with my local therapist has been wonderful. So that's your first step. Now, if we find that therapy alone through BarkBusters or maybe someone else that you know of like them doesn't get your dog to be more well-adjusted and less fearful, then there is plenty of precedence for the use of pharmacological agents in some of these dogs. Uh, I happen to really favor the use of Prozac for a couple of reasons. Number one, it was one of the original uh, serotonin-increasing medications that we began to use you know, quite a while ago in veterinary medicine. So we have a lot of precedence for its use. We have a very known, excellent safety profile, so we're not worried about side effects. My own Labrador is on Prozac because of the fact that he, um, he it, you know, we had, in the summer here, we had thunderstorms every day, pretty, pretty wild ones sometimes, and, and his problem is he got severe thunderstorm anxiety. That's actually a very common problem in all breeds here. So it got so bad that, you know, giving him, uh, periodic sedative just didn't, it wasn't touching him anymore. So with the Prozac and with the use of an occasional sedative, I've been able to get under control. I have my own dog on it and that's how comfortable I am to use Prozac in dogs. And the way it works is it increases serotonin in the brain. And serotonin is a neurotransmitter that is associated with feelings of well-being, feelings of contentment, both in people and in dogs. So in people, of course, we, we know all about the use of Prozac, but there's also Paxil, Lexapro, Celexa, you know, all kinds of different new generation drugs with regard to that. The end result of all these drugs is that we increase serotonin in the brain. We give, uh, neurochemically speaking, uh, some peace to these dogs. But I, I always try to go non-medical if I can. With my BarkBusters therapist, uh, a lot of cases she's been able to just behaviorally uh, be able to use her methods to get them very well adjusted, but in some cases where she hasn't quite gotten them to the point that she's 100% satisfied, nor the owner is, we'll work with her to factor in the use of Prozac. It's generic, it's inexpensive, and it's safe. So I would talk to a local BarkBusters therapist and also be in contact with your uh, veterinarian as well, uh, understanding that he might have to get involved and perhaps provide a prescription for something like a Prozac. So that was Lorraine from Westchester, New York. We do have a question up on the chat from Rottweilers of today, a returning champion from last week. I just want to give a quick plug to this uh, wonderful listener who participated quite a bit in our, our hip dysplasia talk last week. Rottweilers of today is an actual show on the Blood Talk Radio Network, and I would recommend putting that in the search box and checking it out. I have had a insane week at work. Uh, with Dental Month, we're doing about, you know, four, five, six dentals a day and still trying to work in our other elective procedures, spays, neuters, knee surgeries, bladder surgeries, and all that. So it's been really intense, but I have every intention, Rottweilers, of listening to your show. Uh, it sounds pretty exciting because they're a fascinating breed and you seem very knowledgeable about them. But let me address her question specifically. A nine-year-old intact male Rottweiler had his spleen removed, had a 10-centimeter mass. That's pretty big. Preliminary Report today, uh, it was a hematoma. What can cause a hematoma on the spleen? He's a show dog and CH tracking dog in good health. Okay, very good question. Uh, first of all, hematoma is very good news because hematoma is a benign, deadly, you know, potentially deadly, so we're glad it's out of there, but it's a benign uh, type of lesion on the spleen. What happens is 
these hematomas come from typically a vascular incident within the spleen. So, so usually what we're talking about is the bursting of a blood vessel within the spleen. The spleen is a very, very vascular organ because it is a it serves two functions. Number one, it stores extra blood. So, oh, champion tracking dog. Okay, thank you for clarifying. Rottweiler today uh, <laughs> just clarified that CH meant champion tracking dog. Okay, thank you for the clarification. So, what happens is there's a vascular incident. The, 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 the spleen is a very large blood storage organ. So, if there's ever acute hemorrhage and like a major trauma, like a hit by car, something like that, the spleen contracts and puts more blood out to keep the blood volume up so the person doesn't, person or dog doesn't go into shock. And this goes for kitties as well. So it's a very vascular organ. It also is an immune system organ, so it helps at, to, to serve as a blood filter to relieve infection. So you have great big blood vessels running through the spleen. And with hematoma, you, what, what you have is a, a major vessel explodes and hemorrhages within the spleen. And what happens is it begins to compromise the capsule of the spleen. It, it, it actually distends it uh, because of the pressure that it causes. And what you have there now is this compromised region of the spleen that is going to fill in with a little bit of scar tissue, fibrous connective tissue. And no matter how well the body does its job in trying to protect that compromised area, it still isn't as nice and tidy and vascularly uh, uh, well conformed as the healthy spleen was. So what happens? You have now a predisposition to more ruptures of more vessels. The capsule of that spleen distends some more. The pressure itself can cause a phenomenon known as necrosis, which is actual cell death within the spleen. And some of these hematomas can get huge. Here's where they get frightening. When you start to get, you know, as big as this one was 10 centimeters in diameter, um, I've taken some out the size of uh, cantaloupes, I took one out actually one time the size of a bowling ball. So, you know, they can get huge. What happens is they're a ticking time bomb because once that capsule becomes so compromised that it can actually just burst outright, the dog bleeds out internally, and usually it happens within a matter of seconds to minutes, and they can die acutely. So by having had that spleen taken out, this dog's life was saved because uh, – that 10-centimeter mass probably at some point would have gotten larger and larger and larger, and unbeknownst to the owner, could have exploded. They can just be this unknown ticking time bomb. So that's splenic hematoma. And I hope the confirmed final report um, you know, is the same as the preliminary, that it is hematoma, because that is far preferable to the other type of thing we'll commonly see in the spleen of an older Rottweiler, which would be hemangiosarcoma, and that is an aggressive malignant tumor of the spleen. So very good news that it came back hematoma. And thank you for the question, Rottweilers. And again, everyone who has been listening, uh, check out that show, Rottweilers of Today. And again, once my life calms down a little bit, I tend to get on there myself and have a listen. Our next uh, email question, before uh, getting to this one, we want to, again, just quickly put out the toll-free number to call in and ask me a question, one 1-877-878-1435. Give me a call. We've only had one caller tonight. I like callers. Callers are fun. I do like to chat questions too because um, it's coming in real time. And certainly we enjoy the email questions, but getting callers is really cool. So if you've got something to, uh, to talk about or ask me, by all means, take advantage of our toll-free number. Moving on to Tara from Hillsborough, New Jersey. Ah, my old... Home state, I miss it so much in some ways right now. I'm glad I'm not there, though, because they're getting pounded, pounded, pounded with snow. Tara, if you're listening, oh, goodness gracious, move to Florida. Go back to Jersey and visit your friends and family periodically, but that's not for me anymore. I, I, my friends that are still in Jersey, I talk to them, and they're just downright depressed. It's just, they're just and, and I guess there's more on the way. So it's been a tough winter for you guys, but let's let's address Tara's question here. It's a good one. Since my cat was a kitten, he goes through these daily episodes where he sucks on and kneads the carpet with his paws. Why does he do this and should I be concerned? <laughs> um, this is an interesting phenomenon that we see in cats and, I, and we actually see in some dogs as well, but it's more common in cats. Um, this phenomenon to sort of nurse on the carpet and knead with their paws like they're a kitten suckling on their mother is usually the result of the kitten having been pulled away from mom and litter too soon. 
That is why my recommendation is if you can, if people can help it, if shelters can help it, if cat owners can help it, cat breeders, what have you, rescue people, try to keep those kittens with their mom as long as you possibly can. You know, ideally, I'd like to see them with their mom till 12 weeks of age. I understand with the shelters and rescue people, that's often not possible. It's just not realistic. They're trying to get these uh, kittens adopted out as quickly as they can. But, you know, try to keep them with mommy and litter until at least eight weeks of age. Uh, because at that point, they're fully weaned. They've had a lot of the social interaction that's necessary for them to be well-adjusted, socialized adult cats. And cats can be very fickle about uh, not being socialized properly because it can really affect them and lead to quirky behavioral problems down the road. Now, this isn't really a behavioral problem because, you know, he's sucking on the carpet, he's kneading the carpet. It, it, you know, I wouldn't characterize it as a behavioral problem because for all intents and purposes, he's not really hurting himself. He's not hurting your home, I hope. He's not sucking it to the point that he's sucking, you know, carpet fibers out. Usually it's a harmless little habit that they have because they're dealing with something lost from their kittenhood, so to speak. My own cat, Enrique, he's now uh, seven years old, but uh, he came in uh, when I was back when I was working in New York, so it was early in my career. He came in as a kitten, probably couldn't be a day over four weeks old. The kittens uh, were abandoned. There was this litter of kittens. There was no mom to be found. She might have uh, died or maybe just was a very young mom that didn't turn out to be a very good mom. And... Whatever the case, these kittens were by themselves. There was four of them. They were very sick. Two of them died. Um, my wife uh, fell in love with this one little black puffball, and she nursed him back to health in our home. And he does that weird uh, making biscuits, sucking thing, but he, he does it specifically with Afghan blankets. So whenever I'm laying down on the couch watching a movie with my Afghan blanket on, I get the pleasure of having my cat, not a kitten, um, on top of me, uh, massaging and sucking on the Afghan blanket. It's something he just cannot resist. It makes him so happy. So you know what? I just let him do it. But there's an example of a kitten who's doing it probably because he was separated from his mom and litter too early. But that was a case that couldn't be helped. At any rate, Tara, I hope I answered your question there. And, and, you know, there's really nothing to worry about. Um, we have, uh, another, Oh, okay. Uh, we have a we have a post on the chat from Rottweilers of Today. A little FYI, she's posting for me. Love the live chat. I think it's so neat. Uh, Dr. Greg Keller of the Orthopedic Foundation of Animals, or OFA, will be my guest on the 15th. We'll be talking about hip dysplasia, elbow dysplasia, cardiac issues he sees in Rottweilers. That sounds like a really good show. Um, OFA is the Orthopedic Foundation for Animals, and, and Orthopedic Foundation for Animals is one of the uh, governing bodies, so to speak, of genetic, genetically monitoring uh, our breeding animals to give us our best assurance that they're not going to pass on the, the genetics of bad conformation. Um, I, I don't know if they're doing genetic testing at this time, but the OFA is doing, uh, they, they mandate the performance of x-rays of uh, various joints of the body, namely uh, hip dysplasia, and uh, they're, they're checking for any incongruencies and deformities of the hips of the breeding animals so that we're not knowingly passing along the traits for hip dysplasia. It's a very, a very honorable foundation, and Rottweilers of today just uh, gave me a website www.offa.org www.offa.org check it out uh, especially if you're an aspiring breeder this gives you a lot of good pointers in doing it properly especially if you are breeding a large breed dog so moving along here we have a lot of email questions this week this is great I'm so glad the archive listeners are taking advantage of this we have Gina from Naperville, Illinois how about that? Uh, Naperville, Illinois um our caller earlier today was from Illinois as well. Uh, I think that's really cool. Anyway, maybe it looks like we might have a following in Illinois. That's kind of neat. Her question is this. I'm not into feeding my dog raw or holistic food. <laughs> With a family, I cannot justify spending the money to feed my dog organic food. Even my human family does not. Can you recommend some good dog foods that are reasonably priced but not outrageously expensive like all the natural holistic diets are? 
Uh, this is a very good question because, yeah, I mean, I would love to eat organic. It's not always, it's not always convenient uh, in terms of always being able with my schedule to cook, cook, you know, my meal or uh, make sure that something's preservative free and organic. And I'd love to eat organic, but you know, most of the time, I got to be honest, I'm not. The other, the other factor is, of course, the expense of it. Now, my wife is really big on buying my son. His, uh, the organic milk because you know it doesn't have any new hormones in it and at his age he's only two and a half years old he's still very much getting nutrition from from his two percent milk and boy is it expensive you know I, I I I'm very I'm very grateful that I can afford it but goodness with the state of the economy right now and and uh, you know the average family's earning potential just getting worse and worse and worse through the years. You know, I, I to feed their family organic is one matter uh, to be able to afford that, but also, you know, to feed the pets that as well, it's asking a lot. Now, if you can afford it, yeah, go holistic, go organic. I'm all for it, but you know, realistically, it's not for everybody. So I, I understand, Miss Gina, uh, that you don't necessarily want to go there, but you're looking for a good diet. So let's talk about what I would consider good diets. Let's first of all stay away from grocery store and superstore diets. I'm not going to name any by name because although I, I have a modest outreach and audience, you never know who's listening and I don't want to get sued. But I will say some brands that I do like. Earlier in the program, we talked about the Hills Corporation and their line of science diet. I'm a big fan of that. Uh, they they have been making diets for a very long time. I have a good reputation. And I through the years, I've seen many dogs and cats eating the science diet product. And I've seen them just do quite well and thrive quite well. It's reasonably priced. It's not, it shouldn't break most people's banks. And, um, you know, I kind of call it old faithful. It's been around a long time and it's got a really good proven record. The other thing I like about science diet, Specifically, they were the first to come out with the not breed-specific diets, but diets specific to the size of the dog, and you know now even you know more specific to the lifestyle of the dog. And of course, they all kind of started to follow suit. But Science Diet was the first to do that because the nutritional needs of a Rottweiler, for example, are going to be different than the nutritional needs of a Yorkshire Terrier that weighs six pounds. You know, it's just that's just common sense. Uh, you have animals that are built differently. So, what Science Diet really created, uh, as far as I know, was the first precedence for really taking into account the size of, 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 of the dog and also the lifestyle of the dog. So I, I think they're a very good company and they're, they're pretty cutting edge in, in terms of what they've done for pet nutrition. Uh, but that, they're not the only game in town anymore. There's a few other good ones out there. I think Royal Canin is very good. And, uh, again, I've seen pets do really well on those on both the canine and the feline side. Eucanuva and Iams are very, very good. And, uh, you know, I, I'll tell you, I, I, I tend to not keep up with all the new diets out there. It's just impossible. It's hard enough to keep up with all the changes and cutting-edge uh, innovations in medicine for dogs and cats, let alone, you know, keep track of every diet in the world. Go to PetSmart sometime and, and see how many different choices there are out there. So I just always say, you know, I, I kind of stick to my my Fab Five. I like my Science Diet, Royal Canin, Iams, uh, Eucanuba. Did I say Fab Five? I meant Fab Four. <laughs> stick to any of those and, and, you know, check out their variety that they have because uh, very often you can get yourself involved in a uh, lifestyle specific type diet is it a you know old, is it a senior di- uh, senior pet is it a large pet a small pet uh, they have indoor cat formulas and outdoor cat formulas less active more active so you know check that out and, and see if that price agrees with you and I think that is still doing your pet justice by going by that caliber of diet uh, moving on here we got about 16 minutes left so time is ticking away to give me a call the number is 877-878-1435, 1-877-878-1435. Please feel free to give me a call. It is not too late, and I would love to hear from you. Um, in the meantime, we also have our chat room open. You're free to post live questions there. I'm going to move on to my next email question. I'm just, I hope I pronounced this name right. This is Kishan, I guess, is the best. K-E-S-H-A-W-N. I'm going to say Kishan. From Los Angeles, California. Wow, we're reaching Californians now. I'm very excited. I have a pit bull, and my wife and I are expecting a baby in a few months. Some people have warned me that I need to get rid of my pit because they are a danger to small children. I am so torn because I would never compromise the safety of my baby over a dog, but at the same time, my pit is my boy. He is a neutered mush of a dog, 
He's never even growled at anyone or any dog, never displayed any kind of aggression. This dog predated my wife, and the thought of giving him up is heartbreaking. I'm the only parent he's ever known. Okay, this is this is a good question because, you know, pit bulls, what, you know, people hear the word and they already – they already have this trepidation of the attack dog that's going to rip your head off if you get near the you know the local crack house. Um, but let me tell you about the reality of pit bulls. In the vast majority of cases, when they have been aggressive, they have been made that way through systematic abuse of very bad people abusing them to behave in this way, to make them aggressive and fearful and weary of people so they will attack and protect their crack house or meth lab or just some idiot that wants his... Uh, his, his, his junkyard protected or something like that. It is people that make them this way. So obviously, Kashan, you have raised this dog with love, with kindness, and you know what? He's giving it back. Um, now, I, I would never say that your a baby is perfectly safe with your dog. I would never say that about any dog. But in my experience, a pit bull is no more dangerous towards children than any other breed. In fact, I find that when they are raised with love and with kindness, they are wonderful dogs. Uh, one of my staff members, uh, Caitlin, my, uh, one of my certified veterinary technicians, rescued a pit bull. She's, she's as sweet as a dog can be. They come in. I, I rarely muzzle the pit bulls that are kept as, as pets and, and, and raised with love for the dog. Uh, they come in. They're cooperative. They're licking you. They're happy. They're good with the children. Um, but at the same token, you know, we have to understand that any breed of dog is still an animal and they can be unpredictable. And a new baby comes in, it's a big change. They don't, they're often confused by it and, and bad things can happen. So no, I don't say get rid of that dog right away. I would say let's have supervised interaction with the child as it gets older. You know, let, let, let the dog come near and take a sniff under your close supervision. You know, never put the baby down and say, go ahead and give him a whiff because you never know what could happen. Um, but under close, you know, I did this with my own dogs. And I, have a, I have a Labrador retriever, like number one breed with dogs. I have a Border Collie uh, pointer mix that wouldn't hurt a flea. You know, I have very gentle dogs, but still, you know, I was very, very careful. I'd let them get within a certain threshold, maybe within a couple feet of my babies when, you know, after they were first born. And little by little, I let the dogs get closer as I felt more comfortable that they were not going to show any, any kinds of aggression because they're confused. Now, that said, you still never leave them unsupervised, especially when they hit the toddler years. Um, you know, they, they start to approach one year of age, and they're getting to two. I got a two-and-a-half-year-old, my boy right now. They can be very rough with these dogs. They can pounce on them. They can pull their ears, yank on their tails. It, you got to be vigilant and, and, and look after the children, not allow them to abuse the dogs. That's not fair to the dogs. At the same time, though, you know, you have to be weary of the fact that the dog may not be so tolerant of that. So supervision all the time. Train the children as well as you train the dogs and just see how it goes. But should you get rid of your dog that predated your wife that has only known you as an owner that you actually, you know, express sincere love for just because it's a pit bull? Hell no. Uh, I would never pigeonhole a uh, any particular breed like that. You know, I, I honestly would have greater issue with a small child with, you know, some of the little terriers out there that can be aggressive with children, small children or less tolerant. Uh, my brother just had to give up his dachshund because he bit his two-year-old. You know, those little guys I'm actually more concerned about than a pit bull. So I hope that answers your question. But just be careful. It's very important. Just always, 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 always be careful. Um, moving on here to our next email question, and I believe this might be our last one. Let's see. Yes, this is our last question. Save the best for last. No, they were all wonderful questions. We got one more to share with you. Uh, before we go on to this next question, I just want to remind everyone listening that next week I have a very neat guest, Dr. Teresa Goodson of Animal Veterinary, or I'm sorry, of a, uh, AVS in Orlando or Maitland, Florida, a little suburb of Orlando. It's uh, Affiliated Veterinary Specialists. It's a referral center. She is a board-certified internal medicine specialist. She's going to come on the program and talk to us about diabetes. This is a huge problem in both dogs and cats. It's a prevalent problem. There's ways we can prevent it. There's different ways to treat it and deal with it. And I'm going to have her educate all of you about diabetes. Why do we see it? Uh, are there lifestyle uh, indications that lead to diabetes or the things that we can do as pet owners to 
do the best we can to 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 make certain that our our pets are not going to get um, diabetes. We have a chat room question here, or actually a statement. Rottweiler today says, "I agree 110% with you. I've spent over 25 years combating breed-specific legislation and trying to educate others on owner responsibility." Now, I love that statement because it is so true. It is so, you know, and Rottweilers too have been pigeonholed as, as nasty dogs. Man, I just saw a Rottweiler today. I will tell you, this dog is massive. She's got to be 130-pound, big pile of mush. She's so sweet. She's licking her faces, and she had a little tumor on the side of her face. It looked benign, but I wanted to be sure, so I, I just kind of pinched it with my finger, and I, I poked it with a needle. It's just called a fine needle aspirin to get a little sample. And you know what? She didn't even move. After I was done, I prepared my slide, came over. She licked my hand. I gave her a treat. You know, that's, that's, that's the Rottweiler that's raised well and loved well. And I'm sure Rottweilers of today, she has a passion for Rottweilers so great that she's got a show about the breed. And I'm sure she has seen some of, some of the wonderful Rottweilers out there. But, yeah, breed-specific legislation is ridiculous. Um, I think it should be owner, idiot owner-specific legislation uh, because it's, it's, it's the, the owners of these dogs that buy these dogs and, and, and raise them under torment for the purpose of that being a mean fighting dog or guard dog or something like that. So thank you for your statement. Um, but let's go on to our next question here. And again, phone lines open. We have eight minutes left. So by all means, uh, go ahead and give us a call. one eight seven seven eight seven eight one four three five. Only one caller so far tonight. Let's see if we can get one more. Come on. Don't be shy. I know you want to call. The last question is from Jennifer from Vieira, Florida. Her question is this. Oh, this is a good one. I love this question. <laughs> My dog has had to have his anal gland squeezed out by the vet once a month. Otherwise, he rubs his butt all over the carpet and gets infections back there. Question is, what are these things and why do dogs have them? And is there a way to make it so they don't fill up so often? Great question because this is a very common problem. I would say about one in five dogs need to, on some regular basis, have their anal sacs actually uh, anal sacs, S-A-C-S. Their anal sacs, I'll explain the difference between the glands and the sacs in a moment, but have to have their anal sacs uh, manually expressed because they do fill up and make the dog uncomfortable and predisposed to infections back there. Um, so what are they? That's her first question. Um, let, let, let's get into that first because a lot of people just don't understand, you know, why are these smelly, fluid-filled things? there and why is my dog making skid marks all over the house and why is he walking on his rear end um here's the deal the 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 anal sacs collect fluid from the anal glands the anal glands are actually very very small um we really don't see them or feel them grossly they're in the wall of the rectum and they secrete this fluid they secrete this stuff and this stuff collects in the anal sacs and it's um it's this fluid that accumulates. What's normally supposed to happen is as the, the pet defecates, as the feces passes through, it presses on the anal sac, and then this fluid gets expressed onto the feces. So it's a scent organ. It gives the feces a distinct scent. It's a communication organ, a, dis, a disic, distinct scent for uh, the wolf pack to sort of know that one another's poop is around, and if they smell a strange poop, they know a stranger has been around. It's sort of a, a pack-type thing. Um, of course, we have the, vestig the vestigial organ um, in our domestic dogs, and actually, we, we have them in cats. Some cats need to have them squeezed out. Now, the question also was, you know, is there a way that we can make them not fill up so often? What I generally recommend is try bulking up the stool. So, feeding a high fiber diet. Um, I, earlier, I talked about canine or science diet canine light formula as a weight loss diet. Um, it's also very good as a uh, stool bulking diet because it's very high in fiber. So that's something you can consider feeding. You can also consider adding Metamucil to the to the food in the powder form, the unflavored. Uh, there is a veterinary one. People are increasingly having problems finding the the uh, the unflavored Metamucil because most people want to get the fruity tooty flavored stuff, so it tastes decent when you drink it. But there's a product called Vetasil. It's uh, V E T A S Y L. You can Google it. Um, it's basically Metamucil. Um, for for dogs, and you know you put a certain amount of it in the food, and that can bulk up the stool. So bulking up the stool increases the likelihood of those anal sacs getting expressed. Um, we do actually have a caller, and 
The number ends in 3916. You are on the air. How can I help you? Hi, this is Jan from Rock Riders of Today. Oh, hello there, my <laughs> chat friend. Hi, how, how are you? you? I, I, I love <laughs> your show, and I've been trying to refer it around to friends of mine to uh, tune in. Uh, oh, very well, I want to come to yours, too. Definitely want to check oh, that out. Great, thank you. Uh, Regarding the uh, anal gland, my grandson, he has a a Siberian, and she's probably about 40 pounds, maybe 43. She's light. But she's had two uh, infected glands that's ruptured. She's had surgery twice. I've taken her Mm -hmm. in. And uh, uh, it's been recommended that we might try feeding her also pumpkin or string beans along with her diet for the additional fiber. And mm-hmm. with that said, I have a question. What about the product, Perfect. it's powder, called Benefiber? Uh, and what would be the amount to uh, use on our food? That's a, that's a good question. That's a human-based product, um, if I'm correct there, right? It's not it's not veterinary. You got you can see it out there at, like, health food stores. Is right. That, it's it, no flavor. It's uh, uh, right. yeah, There's no flavor to it. Do you know what the active ingredient is offhand? Is it psyllium? Hold on, I went. I went to grab it. Um, okay, if I knew the active ingredient, I can. I can better help you in terms of. Uh, I, I'm familiar with the product. I've seen it. I don't recall where I've seen it, but it. It sounds like, you know, f- fiber is fiber, and it probably it would help. But you know, as far as amount, uh, ba- what it- basically it says so wheat dextrin gluten free, and that's about all it has under the ingredient list. Three grams okay, of dietary so- fiber. Yeah. Okay, so it's not psyllium. Psyllium is actually the active ingredient in uh, Metamucil and Vetacil, and it's a really ah. nice bulk former. But uh, I'm sorry, did you say something? No, I, I was I just was commenting or okay, making um, a, a guttural so, sound. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay, no, that's quite all right. Uh, so, so you know, I would say when you're whenever you're talking about, you know, is a Siberian husky what about like fifty, sixty pounds, something like that? No, she's most lighter. I'm going to say she's probably about forty, forty-five. Okay, so I would say that my general guideline I like to go to is a quarter teaspoon per 10 pounds of body weight. Um, And, you know, maybe I would start with 50% of that just to make sure she tolerates that well enough, give it a week, and then then bump it up to the full dose. So, you know, so probably what you're talking about with a dog that size is like a teaspoon, teaspoon and a quarter when it's all said and done. Okay, okay. Yeah. Great. And uh, surgery's been done twice. Now, surgery in terms of removing the glands or lancing them and draining Uh, them? Uh, lancing, draining, and the last time she had to have a drainage tube for a while to make sure it was totally drained. Okay. And this, this was about six months apart. Mm, bummer. That that so she had full out abscesses. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. In, in dogs like that, how old is this dog? She is, I think, six or seven. Okay, six or seven. At this age, you know, huskies. A lot of them live long. <laughs> I know the average age is 10 to 12, but, you know, I, I see plenty that are like, you know, 15, 16 years old. I think it might be worth having those things taken out. Um, the technology of that particular surgery has has made the uh, potential side effects almost non-existent, you know, in the right. hands of an experienced surgeon. Um, uh, my practice, we take them out all the time. Uh, that my predecessor had been taking them out for 20 years using an older procedure. She never had one case of incontinence. Everybody's worried about the, you know, the incontinence afterwards that could that could be caused. That is a so severely, uh, severely rare <laughs> uh, complication, even with the older procedure. But with the newer procedures, it's even less. What we do is we fill them up with a gel, and then it hardens, and then we just bluntly dissect the soft tissue and, and resect them. So it's, it's actually easier now than ever to take them out and just be done with it, you know, if it's putting her through that kind of agony. Yeah, great. Well, they used to send her out grooming about every six weeks, and now they don't do that because of the economy. And uh, so she was getting her anal glands expressed regularly. And uh, Grandma just hasn't doesn't get over there often enough, and when I do, I don't. I should do it for her. Yeah, no, um, I understand. Huskies aren't always the most cooperative either. You know, they're they're kind of uh, you know, they're independent spirits. You know, <laughs> but um, yeah, I consider having them just taken out. You know, that would save you probably a lot of aggravation, not just you, but the the dog as well. Um, but uh, something to consider. I only have a little bit of time here. I do thank you for calling, and uh, I'm going to try to get on your show and, and listen and, and and contribute as well because I really love having you on. You're you're really uh, fun to chat with on the chat room, and I do thank you for calling. 
Well, thank you much, and I look forward to having you over there and as a guest too in the future. Oh, yeah, we got it. We got it. We got to definitely connect about that. I got your address. Be in touch, please. Great. Okay. Bye bye. Have a good night. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was a really fun episode, and uh, thank you all for your email questions. Thank you for my two callers. Thank you for my chat room friend, Rottweilers of Today. Check out her show. Everyone have a great evening. Tune in next week for Diabetes. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day the Internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.